My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shadow. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. This episode is very special. It's your chance to hear from the legendary thinker, innovator, disruptor and cradle-to-cradle hero William McDonough. Architect, designer, thought leader and author. His vision for a future of abundance is all about helping companies and communities think differently. William was the inaugural chair of the World Economic Forum's Meta Council on the Circular Economy and he currently serves on the Forum's Global Future Council on the Future of Environment and Natural Resource Security. For more than 40 years, he has defined the principles of the sustainability movement. William is without exaggeration a legend in his field, and for anyone who is interested in the circular economy, or indeed just cares about the future of our planet, you need to know about William. Many of you have no doubt read his books. Uh, The most famous is basically the Circular Economy Bible that he co-authored with Michael Browngart in 2002, and it's called Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things. It is such a good read. Now, I don't mind saying that he is my hero, and talking to him was a highlight of my year. We discuss how humans stand in nature, why we think that we ought to have dominion over it, and we question the point of that if we're intent on destroying it. We discuss why we should view waste as a resource and how we can transition to doing that. We talk about how we measure society's success now and how we might change that in the future. As Bill and Michael write in Cradle to Cradle, in the race for economic progress, social activity, ecological impact, cultural activity and long-term effects can be overlooked. William's vision is for a positive, delightful future. We also talk about the importance of language. He tells us about what it was like in the early days before the circular economy took flight and he met with serious opposition from those invested in the current system. We also talk about clothes and Diana Vreeland and beauty. Bill can talk about any subject in a completely delightful way. Buckle up for a wild conversational ride. Get your notebooks out because there's lots of stuff to learn here. And I would suggest listen to this one a few times. 
If you haven't already read Cradle to Cradle, it is an absolute must. <laughs> Talking of reading lists, I got a book out. Rise and Resist, How to Change the World is out now, my friends. And I'm scooting all over Australia, signing copies and holding events. Check it out on my Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press and on my website, clairepress.com, to find out more. So I came to New York and I'd had an accident. I had a lot of scars on my face. And I was a young architect, 26, in training. And I was wearing a bow tie. And I went to the Metropolitan Museum for their big gala evening. And Diana Vreeland somehow decided I would be uh, her escort for part of the evening. She just came over, took me by the elbow and said, young man. She liked she, the bow tie. She just said, Let's, let me show you around. And so it was just But she sort of knew marvelous. things. She liked you. I hook. had no idea. She just was very friendly. And so we walked around and it was great for me because I'm just in New York and here we are. Look at this. And anyway, at the end of the evening, she came back over and she goes, Bill, can I give you some fashion advice? And I said, sure, please. And she said, always wear that bow tie. And, and then she said, you're so ordinary looking that no one will ever recognize you. But if you wear that bow tie, they'll walk into the room and go, oh, there's the one with the bow tie. Come on. There's the end. And so she said, always wear that bow tie. <laughs> You are wearing that bow tie right now. And I was wearing right bow tie, now. so that's when people ask me why do I wear a bow tie. I got some fashion advice from the best. Oh wow! Yeah. Come on, let's yeah. stop now. Do we need to even? That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is an amazing and wonderful story. Yeah, she just was very gracious when she speaks. Yeah. You got to do it. She told Manola Blanick. You know Manola Blanick, the shoe designer. She told him to design shoes. Hmm. He did. You do what she said. Yeah, she was quite powerful person and also she always looked the same so so when she said that she touched her glasses and she touched the bun on her head and you know that she always looked like that these were signature glasses this was signature hairdo because if you took Diana Vreeland and you mussed up her hair and took away her glasses you might not recognize her in a crowd. It's actually a fashion thing to have a signature isn't it lots of the greatest fashion directors and fashion people just have a look yeah Hold on to something. But we're not here to talk about looks. We're here to talk about Cradle to Cradle. Yeah. The system and the book. Yeah. My goodness. I mean, I just reread the book. I read it a long time ago and I just reread it. And I could do a whole interview just on the introduction alone. There's so much fascination just captured in those words and in those ideas. But I, I'm going to start just by asking you if you could briefly define what Cradle to Cradle means. In the simplest sense, Cradle to Cradle is in counterpoint to cradle to grave. Cradle to grave is used in industry to refer to things that are from the beginning to the end. And so we're saying there's no end. So we don't design for end of life because we might achieve it. We design for end of use or we design for next use, cradle to cradle. So one thing's waste is another thing's food, like in nature. So that's a fundamental principle of cradle to cradle is designing for end of use, designing for, if it's the next life, that would be something that's a living thing. So if you have plants and you eat them and you literally consume them, then they go back out through your body into the nature and they can be used to give us a nutrient in biology. If you have polymers or metals, things like that, they are technical nutrients and their next use is in industrial cycles and we don't want them to contaminate the natural world. 
So cradle to cradle is think of things as biological nutrients or technical nutrients. And if they're biological, you can be a consumer because you literally consume toothpaste. Right? But if it's a technical material, polymers, plastics, metals, you are a customer. It seems very practical and obvious that we'd be thinking this way, but we don't. Well, uh, when the book is now being used to teach rhetoric, and the argument for using it is that it makes an argument about a new idea in an effective way. And the way they described it to me was they say, you have this way of discovering the obvious. So when you read it, you go, well, that was obvious. And then you realize it wasn't obvious at all before you read it. But you can't unknow it once you know and it. And you can't unknow it, yeah. Which so is how there's a lot of power it. in that book. I feel like yeah. if you read the book and then your life is like, okay, this now is like clearly this. the way it should be. Right. That's rhetoric. Well yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> it has to go all the way back to design, doesn't it? I think so. Because if you look at intentionality, and let's imagine somebody is buying clothing or, or getting a home or working in a garden or whatever, something that you do, working in industry. The idea that you could go back all the way to the fundamental, principled foundation of the activity is really powerful, and it allows people to be creative in a principled way. Otherwise, they're God, just... Say it again. I mean, what a good phrase. Yeah. Why what don't it... we think like that? Well, I think people don't realize the power of their own ability to create and that that power is really informed by their perception of the world and can be informed by their intentions. So the question becomes, when you act, are you de facto playing out a plan? Because if you act and you buy toxic things or you promote toxic things without thinking about it, is that your plan? So when you look at the human species today, the entire planet is under human management. There's no large mammal that's not being completely managed by humans right now. And look at the oceans and look at the atmosphere. So when you think about nature, in 1838, Emerson was asked by Harvard to write an essay on nature. And the question was, if human beings are natural, are therefore all things made by humans part of nature? And so he, after thinking it through, he said, nature is all those things, he called them, I think, the unchangeable essences. It's the things too big for humans to affect. That's nature. Is there and, anything left? Yeah, exactly. His examples were the oceans, the mountains, the, sky. the leaves, the air. Whoops. Whoops. So, welcome to the first industrial revolution. So we've been able to, to take down the mountains. We've been able to... Well, mountaintop mining yeah. I was just writing about. Yeah. Devastating to know that exists. Yeah, yeah. So, so the point is, if humans are in nature... You know, are we building a machine in the garden or, or are we um, turning the garden into a machine? So as we look at the idea of use, you know, is nature here for our use? That's a powerful concept that's been around. That's dominion. But you, you have stewardship is implicit in dominion because you can't have dominion over something that's dead. So no, you, it's God, a sad, no. I know, it's a sad kind of thought. And, and I, I think for design now, in this mm. era, we're in the age of the Anthropocene. Mm. So we are now affecting the planet, humans. So if that's true, then what is our plan? If we allow what's going on to happen, it's our de facto plan, is climate change, ocean plastics. It's our plan, unless we have another plan. So we need another plan. We need another plan. So when, when I look at fashion, the thing I love about fashion and working in fashion, because I work in so many sectors because I'm a sort of 
I'm a curious person. I poke around lots of places, and these principles apply to all these sectors, so it's kind of fun. I get to do packaging, I get to do buildings, I get to do all kinds of, and now, you know, textiles and fashion. Let's talk about fashion. Well, for me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. You fashion something. So if you think of it as a verb, then it's an action, and an action has consequences. So what is the consequence of that action of fashioning? And if we look at the history of fashioning, the first would be hunter-gatherers collecting, I don't know, skins to wear. Who knows? And then we move into the very first manufacturing, very first of humans. It's quite astonishing. Manufacturing comes from the Latin for hand and execute. Mm-hmm. Hand. It means hand execution. So if you think about it, what was the first manufacturing? Get out. Made by hand. Weaving. Do you know I've always wanted... A stellar argument that you can't shake that is why fashion matters. Yeah. And then Nick yours. Fashion is a verb. Because once you find out, this is the Plato Aristotle relationship. When you find out what is the right thing to do, when you find out the morals, the ethics, the beauty, the ugly, you know, these counterpoints, then the question is Aristotle said, is it's time then for practical wisdom. So the wisdom is let's do the right thing. What is the right thing? And then the action, the fashioning, is then how do I act based on that wisdom? So what would I, how would I do it? So if you look at the ancient manufacturing, it starts in fashioning. Of course it does. So what are the first things made by humans that aren't collecting sticks along the way of nomadic behavior? It's weaving, it's knotting, and it's also making brick. So the men are making brick, the women are weaving and tying knots, and then they all get together at night and tie knots. So that's the beginning. It's hand-making, fashioning. Then we move to closer to the modern era, and once we have the looms of Manchester... Smash those looms. There's that <laughs> question, yeah, with the Luddites saying, well, you know, this is going to take away the handwork, and that's what Gandhi's point was, that we're going to lose our connection and our humility and our ability to craft. So we almost should have called it something else. We should have called it machine factoring. <laughs> See, because the hand has been removed. Yeah. Well, not always. Not always, no. And then you ask, well, is it better for society to have a less expensive and less complicated access to cotton fabrics? Or should we still be rustic and be spinning it at home <laughs> for a few hours every day. So that becomes a question. Then you, then you realize that we all sort of have access to these things now because of manufacturing in the sense of the machines. So as we move on to the next levels, the part that I think gets people moving in fashion is to start to think about what are the new techniques of fashioning. So now we'll experiment with 3D printing. We'll talk about, you know, the Jacquard Loom was, was a, quite a dramatic moment in the world of looms, but now we're seeing 3D manufacturing, we're seeing growing fabrics and things like that. Actually, the 3D printing stuff is fascinating. There was an exhibition, I'm going off piece, but there was an exhibition at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences in Sydney um, that looked at basically maths computing, pattern making, and then drew those lines from the Jacquard loom right through to 3D printing and looking at the possibility of how we can democratize that stuff and how we can... It's actually a revolution. I found it absolutely fascinating. I mean, I hadn't really considered the idea that we could be... I mean, I don't know how far away it is, but we could be at home, press a button, and out comes the shoe. So I think what happens is we get entranced for um, 
anything other than human reason. So we got entranced by technology. And if you think about the loom, my grandmother was a weaver, and my grandfather set the loom for her. And we used to sit as little children, watching him feed the threads through the loom into the right places, working off of these incredible diagrams that actually are all look like algorithmic computer code. So they really were two-dimensional computers mm -hmm. with patterns. And you see the diagrams, it's all these algorithmic patterns. Fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. I saw you speak on a panel about the circular economy with some very interesting people, with Sebastian Fabre, who is one of the co-founders of Vestia Collective, and with Giulio Bonazzo, who is the man behind Econol, which is a fibre that we often talk about, especially in swimwear. Um, what did you learn from sitting there in that company? I loved it because what my learning was that our notions from 25 years ago, that we could start to see goods as services, is actually playing itself out now in so many sectors. We see it in automotive, obviously, but in um, packaging and all kinds of things. But in fashion, when we first posited in Cradle to Cradle this idea of biological and technical nutrients, what is implicit in that is that in the product, you, you basically want the use of the product, not necessarily the molecules. So you don't look at a television set and say, I want to go buy 4,360 chemicals and put it in front of my children and tell them to play with it. You know, what you want to do is watch TV, or you want a computer, or you want a piece of clothing. And so you don't really looking at the molecules. And so it's really a service that is provided to you, and that it does have the ability to be ephemera, which is interesting, because a lot of people say products have to be really durable. Well, so, I say that. Yeah, Here of you are attacking another one of my sacred cows. Okay, but it's, it's a great <laughs> one because you need to get past it if we're going to solve our problem, mm -hmm. because I garden wearing my grandfather's coat because it's a durable coat. It's beautiful. I get two. I had wool. It was Filson. They look the same today. And a blue jean coat, gardening coat. They're perfect. So I get to wear my grandfather with me when I'm gardening. That, that is exquisite quality in there. And so that's one thing. That's the durable good. Mm. But we want the fashion to be good. So we want safe, healthy first before we move it on. Because if we're going to have a circular economy, we actually realize the circular economy won't be good if it circulates bads. So we need to make goods first. And then we have, and we call them goods, so let's make them good. Then we have services. We have goods and services. What happens when the good is a service? And that was what was fun about the panel. Because we talked about things like washing machines, how you want the clean clothes. You don't need the rubber, the glass, the steel. We just need to change our thinking, don't we? Yeah. We're told we need to own it, but why? Well, we were accused we of being communists when we wrote the book because everybody said you don't believe in ownership. And my kids don't see the need to own a car in a parking space We've changed in the city. culture since then. Yeah, it has changed. And so that I saw in the panel because this was now applying those ideas to clothing. It's interesting, isn't it, how quickly we've changed culture on that, that you could be accused of being a communist for talking yeah, yeah, about not owning, yeah. but now we, we presume, we know that the share economy is a reality. Right. Millennials don't expect to own a car. They wouldn't. Right. Why would you do that? Yeah. You can hire one. It's a waste get a go-get car if you want to drive to the city yeah. once. Waste of space. But we've now really changed our thinking there. there a lot of that some has changed. Sectors. <laughs> but the, the thing that hasn't and that worries me is the Pareto effect which is 
that you know it, things accrue to the few in, in I've these never systems. Heard of that. Yeah, it's like an L-shaped graph. And when I was at World Economic Forum two years ago, and I've been going for 17 years, the opening line was there are eight individuals on the world whose wealth is equal to three and a half eight billion. Men. Let's say men. Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah. In the United States, it's three who have the equal wealth of 150 million, one half the population. So when you start to see that, then you realize that this idea of a circular economy is really important, but it's the world of goods and services which in the modern economic context, the GDP of the world is only about 8% of the financial markets. Mm-hmm. The rest is derivative. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. We're the going to talk about economic shapes. Yeah. It's the creation of the perception of scarcity where nothing exists. So I think that's what's fascinating about this, is what we were talking about is real things circulating in society and providing multiple benefits mm-hmm. over and over again. Mm-hmm. That's the way to grow an economy. Because if you go from take, make, waste, then you have to go harvest new material rather than do this. And so it's really important for the planet that we have a circular economy. But then when we look at sharing economy, we realize that's taking advantage of emptiness. So we have empty apartments, empty houses, we have Airbnb. We have empty cars running that are sitting, doing nothing. They can be used. That's the uh, mobility systems or Uber or all those kinds of things. But the one that concerns me is the shared economy. We've also got to share it. So it's not just sharing of emptiness, it's the sharing mm. of the fullness. It's the celebration of abundance and sharing. That's, to me, really an implicitly important part. And when you can cascade a product that's a good, and you can share it with the next generation or people, it's like handing down clothing. You know, it's, it's, uh, these things can become really quite exquisite. I want to pick you up on your use of language, Bill, and I meant to take a note on this and I didn't, so you have to forgive me if I paraphrase, but I'm a writer and I love words and I love the way that we choose words to disseminate ideas and you talk about how we look at the word good and goods. Mm -hmm. In the book that you co-wrote with Michael Baumgart, I noticed the repeated use of the word delightful Mm -hmm. and I loved it. And also, another thing, a kind of rejection of the word sustainable. Hmm. As the world's first sustainability editor of Vogue, I like the word sustainability. But mm-hmm. interesting that you use these words on purpose to frame how we can look at opportunity and possibility. Well, I remember when uh, you know I won the presidential award for sustainable development in 1996 in Washington. And I remember the press coming up and going, Mr. Sustainable, what does it all mean? And I looked at the reporter and I said, well... Are you maintaining yeah, that? Yeah, well, no, what's your relationship to your spouse? And if you said sustainable, I say, that doesn't sound very exciting. <laughs> so if sustainability is going to be being less bad or a kind of maintenance, then it's not like life, which is about growth and abundance and creativity. So let's have children, let's have fun. You know. So if it's all about some zero sum game, it's rather demoralizing. So I think for sustainability, it is a great word and it is the, the lingua franca now of this movement. And it's, so it's perfectly Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. But what I like is when it gets combined with the word development. So even though it sounds a bit wonky, sustainable development, development implies improvement growth. Well, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. That's why I use those because that's, it's a very helpful place for us to focus. There's a lot to do. Yippee, I'm feeling better now. I want to just get back to the the fashion work. So I would like you to tell us about the work that you're doing with the CNA Foundation. 
Right. We co-founded Fashion for Good in Amsterdam. Last year. Last year. Very recent. We're trying to fill an emptiness that we see in the fashion world, see if we can contribute something. And so it's not about another meeting. It's not about a trip somewhere. It's actually about providing tools. So there are three sets of tools that are available. One is the Cradle to Cradle protocol, which we created, translated into language that could be accessible to children. So in Cradle to Cradle, we design things as safe, healthy nutrients and biological or technical metabolisms. That's the first. Second is circular economy, which is let's do it over and over again and let it grow that way. Third is use 100% renewable energy, clean, healthy. And then fourth is clean water and focus on getting clean water to every child in the world every day because it's human right. And then last is uh, social fairness and treat people with dignity and respect. But translating that into the children, I just simply said, it's the search for the good. So let's say good materials. Are there fashion people, the children? Uh, yeah, of <laughs> course. Well, they don't have a lot of time. So, you know, I think... Mate, we, we haven't got very big brains either. We're just far too busy looking at all the sequins. Or we're preoccupied. Yeah. So if you look at a fashion designer is probably one of the most pressurized. I was joking. We have got brains. No, I know, but but they're also like everybody's time. in a hurry. Time. So you become timeful and mindless because you're timefully mindless. You're in a hurry and you don't want to think about it. You also don't want to think about it for another strange reason, which is negligence is determined by knowing better and then doing the wrong thing anyway. So if you don't want to be negligent, there's two ways to do it. One is to not know anything. And then you can't say, I knew about it and I did the wrong thing. You just say, I don't want to know about it because then I know the wrong thing and then oh, I get no. negligent. And nobody wants to take that home to their children or themselves. So they just rather not know, which is a strange but common occurrence. And then the other is we're looking for a kind of timeless mindfulness, which requires you to slow down for a minute, sink it in, and get fierce and get back to work. But you've got work to do because it's not delivered to you on a plate. So we thought, wouldn't it be great if there was a place that could deliver the timeless mindfulness to you, the tools of that. So if you're looking at how to design a product that's safe and healthy, what if we took the Cradle Cradle protocol, which is thick science and hurts your head, unless you're a scientist, and just show people how that works and then show them what we've discovered and then make it available. So we're open sourcing all the dyes all the finishes, the polishes, the rinses, all of it. So as we've done these products, and CNA Foundation exquisitely supported the development of those parts of information working with a commercial operation so that it's ground truth and it's real. Made a t-shirt. And then the we made the t-shirt. first. Yeah, CNA, the company, made the first 100%. Uh, these little t-shirts are so, they're like, a, to me, just the most charming of objects because they're 100% of the molecules of that t-shirt have been assessed for ecological and human health, 100%. And the company was relentless and very cool because they, when we got to the threads, normally these things are stitched with polyester because it's strong. But when you have a perfect organic t-shirt with perfect dyes and so on, done in solar-powered or wind-powered factories, where the only water leaving the factory is evaporation, it means your release from the factory is distilled water. See. That's not the same as polluting a river. That's not the same as powering with fossil fuels and trying to reduce your carbon. We're trying to increase our renewables, not just reduce our carbon. 
We're 100% renewably powered. We're not just 20% less carbon emissions. You proved you could do it. And we proved we can do it. Yeah. How have reactions been? Well, it, uh, it was commercially very successful. And but I mean, we from other market. people commenting and looking I, in. I, I, I mean, don't really, you know, I'm in the eye of the hurricane, so I don't really, I think it, you know, everybody who's seen it, it's like wonderment. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, it's childlike. That's what I love about it. It's good. It's oh, so charming. good. Yeah. And it's we delightful. can do it. We can do it. It's delightful. Because our goal is expressed that way. Our goal is expressed as a positive, not a less negative. Mm-hmm. The less bad is not good. Okay, it's, I want to right? talk about less bad. Being less bad is not being good, by definition. And yet, this is one of the ways that we generally try and fix environmental problems, isn't it? Bit yeah, of a sticking everywhere. plaster, yeah, bit yeah, of yeah. a... Yeah. Try well, and reduce if you, that. If you think of a chart that's starting on the, on the left with a tall bar and saying, here we are today, and then my goal is to reduce that to the right, to zero. So my goal is zero, and I'm starting here, let's say 100%. So that means if my goal is zero, why do I want to be nothing? Because I'm bad. So then I'll say, I want to reduce my carbon emissions by 20%, and that way I'm being less bad. My goal is zero. And there's two elements of that that I find sad. One is you're telling your children that your goal is nothing, and you have to feed and clothe them, so they're making it hard for you. That's such a sad message to a child. It's not supportive. And then the other would be you're telling us what you're not going to do. Right, and if you're telling so someone was that. what you're not going to do, it's like telling the taxi, "I'm not going to the airport." It's interesting because I hadn't considered, even though this seems to be obvious and common sense, I'd never thought of it until I read it in your book, and then I went, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like, hello. Discover the obvious. If you're telling people what you're not going to do, it's not adequate at this day and age, because it's literally like saying to the driver, "I'm not going to the airport." It doesn't really help us that much. Throughout Cradle to Cradle, I had many of my assumptions rattled and shaken, questioned. A lot of them around that negative language. For example, zero waste, something I love. If you were to look at my social media, you would find it was replete with negative messaging with a hashtag that I find positive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Zero waste, Mm -hmm. you know, reduce emissions. Right. All that, right? Right. Help. Well, you see, those things are all worthwhile. You should do them. But don't call them good. You can call them less bad. Ah, no one wants to be less bad. I know, bad. and there you are. <laughs> so, but have you seen the upcycle chart? Have you seen how this works? No, what but it looks I would like? like to. Let me show it to you. When you look at the ideas, the goal of the work becomes a positive one instead of less negative. So, there's your word delightful again. I'm going to read it out. Read it out. Our goal is a delightfully diverse, safe, healthy, and just world with clean air, water, soil, and power, economically, equitably, ecologically, and elegantly enjoyed. It's poetry. There it is. Now, read it and change it to less bad language. Watch what happens. (laughs) No, because then think about that. It would say... Our our goal is a... Less monotonous, less unsafe... Less unhealthy, less unjust world with less polluted air, less polluted water, soil, less carbon emitting power, economically enjoyed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You proved your point. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about waste. So if I could, this is the idea that we, if we start with number, we can get to metrics, tactics, and strategies and goals, but we're benchmarking. If we start with values, then we can start with principles and visions. 
goals, strategies, tactics, metrics, and then value creation. Reframing it. Yeah. So you start with what is the right and the wrong, and you move to less and the more. And in the case of economics, you have to produce more in the value so that a profit can be delivered. Mm -hmm. But notice that to produce more is an executive act because people talk about the triple bottom line for sustainability, but the bottom line is what's left over mm -hmm. is the profit. So if you have triple bottom line, you have what social benefit did you provide while you were doing business? What profit did you leave in the coffers? But executive's job, your job, the people listening, is to be creative and produce revenue for the managers to manage the profit. So our job is triple top line. See, it's different. It's produce the revenue. Because in nature, you can't be alive without growth. It defines a living thing. It has to be alive. It has to grow. In order to grow, it has to have income. And in order to be coherent across generations, you have to have an open metabolism of chemicals operating for the benefit of the organisms and their reproduction. So it's a fundament of life to have growth. So our job economically is to produce revenue, not just profit. Mm. It's to give growth, and then we can share it. Secrets in nature? Not a secret, really, is it? No. Just there for us to see. It's just there it is. I want to talk more about nature, actually. Yeah. Um, there's a passage in the book that I noted down. It's stuck in my head. Again, it's the obvious. But I just thought, oh, I saw it so vividly. I can't remember the exact words. But the idea was you see someone sweeping up the leaves, mm -hmm. the autumn leaves that have fallen from the trees, mm -hmm. and then they put them in a bin. Right. So they're taking nature's nutrients that are designed by nature to go back into the soil and feed it. Mm hmm putting them in a plastic bag in the wheelie bin. Mm -hmm. My question is, what can we learn from nature about waste as a resource? Well, two things. One, it would be, in nature, all waste is food for something else. So that's the first question. If you put it in the bag, what's the next use if you're looking for utilitarianism? Or what's the next, effectively, life, which would mean put it back under the tree and let it turn into soil? Or you take it somewhere and compost it and make it into something fecund that you can use elsewhere. Well, that's really what nature does. And nature's not efficient. If you look at a cherry tree in the spring, all those blossoms, you don't say, okay. how many blossoms does it take? You just celebrate the blossoms because they fall on the ground and they become soil and the worms are happy, the microbes are happy. and you know, You're happy because you had a cherry tree and it was exquisite. You know, that's fashion. Okay, so currently the way that we treat waste and the way that we dispose of waste, even though there is no way, is inefficient. What do we need to do there? And I wonder if you might just talk to us a little bit about recycling, what that really means, downcycling. Mm -hmm. Upcycling. Well, typically today, when we talk about recycling, we're often actually referring to downcycling, that something is losing quality. So... If you recycle a plastic bottle, which is food-grade polyester clear, into a food-grade polyester clear bottle, you are recycling. But we don't. We don't, most often. And then if you look at it being burned for energy, that is entropy and chaos, where we're disaggregating into the atmosphere all these materials never to return. So that's actually entropy. It's a law of physics. I mean, this is not coming back in any hurry. So. That's downcycling because you're losing the quality or the material itself from utility. 
or it's being degraded in quality into a park bench that ends up in a landfill or incinerator. So that idea of the path of disposal, even if you say you're diverting it from landfill or incinerator, if the product wasn't really designed to come back, then okay, you've diverted it and now you're taking it back, but it's typically a downcycling and then it gets recontaminated and put back in the system. So upcycling is actually when you take something that's slightly off base and you purify it and put it back in. So that's one of the things that's exquisite about Cradle to Cradle is that we can actually take recyclates and clean them. We can take out heavy metals. You can do all kinds of things. But we have to make sure that we design that into the process from the beginning. So I yeah. know that you use the example of cars. So when yeah. we break down a car now, the parts, the metal is not pure because it's covered in the paint. We need to redesign how we make products in the first place so that they're easily yes. disassemblable in order to feed them back into the loop. Yes. How far are we ahead with that? I mean, obviously, with the CNA Foundation work that you're doing, we're seeing right. some movement in fashion. But yes. generally speaking, how far are we along with this idea of adopting the circular economy and circular design practices? I think the, the momentum has begun because of the economics of the reuse. And that's what we saw in the panel at the summit yesterday. The fact that the obvious, I mean, three generations ago, the idea that you would pass on clothing to someone else of a, a smaller size or than you now are and that kind of thing in a family was ordinary. So these are not new ideas. They're just recurring in a, in a way that with new technology. So I think that what we're seeing because of a kind of inherent human intelligence applied to artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence is statistical significance. We can see the numbers. Human intelligence is this idea of culture and beauty and how we relate to each other. So it moves the concept of resources into relationships. So you don't say, I have a human resources department. You say, I have a human relations department. Language again? Yeah, you don't, it's words, yeah. And you don't say, I have natural resources. You say, I have natural relations. See, this is a native concept when you think about it. And that means you also could have economic relations instead of economic resources. So what you see is that the idea of these materials and these clothing and all these things becoming a relationship of people to each other, they're trying to attract each other, isn't that interesting? And then they like to refresh it and change it because they like to be fresh and curious. And so all those instincts that lead us to fast fashion, for example, are all part of human nature. We're preening. And so, okay, what if that was joyful? instead of terrifying. Well, when you look at the systems that can take these things and then circulate them, then it does beg the question, you know, what are we circulating? So that's why we want to make sure it's, it's good and it's safe at its base. But then we can celebrate it as we put it into systems that deliver it and take it back and do other things with it. But how far are we along with it? Yesterday I talked to you over lunch at the summit and I was eating with a plastic fork and I said, I hope this is PLA. And he said, I'm sure it is. And then I said, but what's going to happen to it? And he said, I don't know. The Danes have probably got a better chance than some of having compostable yeah, facilities. That's right. But certainly where I live in Australia, we absolutely don't. So right. if you use this... In the United States, we absolutely so don't. So you use so this perfect. supposedly compostable plastic right. material, yeah. but then you chuck it in the landfill bin. Right. And it it's, we're in a very strange transitional moment. If you looked at a yin-yang diagram and said, there's this and there's that, we're right on the edge. We're, we're on the curved line. 
We're neither here nor there. So all of a sudden you realize that if you take that plastic fork and you mix it up with the other plastic forks that are whatever, styrene, polypropylene, polyethylene, things like that, then it turns them into monstrous hybrids because you can't recycle them because they have a biodegradable element. At the same time, if you get one of them in with these forks, you've put something that doesn't compost with it. So we're at a very strange moment. We need systems to change. It's a system. We need governments and regulations to catch up with the ideas that some companies are pushing. Yeah, I think that's true. Is it coming? I think it is. I was just in Chile meeting with the president, and one of the issues there was they were thinking of banning plastic bags on the west coast of Chile because it's a very long coast on the Pacific. What a beautiful idea. It's worked in Kenya. It's worked in other places. Yeah, it's working in cities that are doing it. And other, but what was interesting is they were looking at banning it on the coast because of the concern of the ocean. Keep it out of the ocean. Yeah. So what I was, we were talking with, with the president was when you take this question and bring it forward for legislation, why don't you just say ban it in the whole country? Because they asked, what do you think of banning it on the coast? And I said, I don't think it's a good idea. And they all looked at me like, what? <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, ban it in the whole country. Because if you have people who can game the system 10 kilometers away, then it's a confusing message to the retailers. It's confusing to everyone because you have both. You're not quite sure what you're doing. Just go for it. And then we can say bags are this way. So what will happen, I think, is the transitions will be quite quick because commerce is quick. And if it sees a level playing field and you can't cheat, because it's all one thing. If you see a bag, it's not meant to be plastic, right, for that. Then they'll move to paper immediately. And so all of a sudden, it's like the quandary of your fork. Okay? You just move the bag into a compostable object. And it can serve the same purpose, and it's compostable, but it also is recyclable as paper. So you've picked up recyclability, you've picked up compostability, and now you've made it a rule. That's simple rather than turning into some complex, somewhere you do this, somewhere you do that. So it's very hard to understand those things. In your work, because you meet with so many people, decision makers, people who have the power to change things, whether in business, whether in government, whether in NGOs, how hopeful are you that this transition is coming soon enough, is on its way, is happening now? I mean, are we seeing it? Because I feel like sometimes we are. And then I want to bring in the example of Australia. Well, we're not. Yeah, or the US. Um, well, I think... The important thing that I see, personally, is the incipient parts of it that are about system change. And so you'll see tremendous initiatives, like the Ellen MacArthur Foundation for Circular Economy, beautiful, and they're adopting credit protocols, so that makes me especially excited about it. But this idea of saying we can have a circular economy of biological technical materials that is you know, regenerative by design, and intention and so on. It's really great to see that being adopted and then put into the context of system change. So it can inform regulation, it can inform policy, it can inform people and businesses. That's really useful. In China, we published Cradle to Cradle through Tsinghua and Tongji Universities. Um, we had it translated by poets and published by the engineers so that it could be beautiful to read but also dignified and for the scientists. So. The subtitle was The Design of the Circular Economy. This was in 2005, so it's a long time ago. And now China's had the 12th five-year plan, which is promote the circular economy, and now the 13th five-year plan, which is implement the circular economy. Now, I'm a bit ignorant about this, actually. But I, it, people are. Mm. And it's hard, Sounds because when good. you go to China, 
they're, you know, they still sort of trying to figure out what this means because they still see it as please recycle, really, when it's actually much richer than that. Because the circular economy we need is not just the linear economy in a circle. So it's not just keep making the same stuff that's suboptimal and then do it again. That is too simplistic because it's the wrong material. So your question is right. How do we get to change to become a system change? So I think, for example, in packaging, we can clarify this to say compostable, reusable, and recyclable in its various forms of recycling, whether it's broken down mm. or just reformed. Mm. But just keep it that simple. Mm. And that would knock out all the pouches that are seven layers of different plastic covered with all kinds of miscellaneous mm. material and start to clarify that. So that's with Cradle to Cradle. You know, I, we created it and we created a program and then we manifest that as assessors, then we give it to the institute we created, which can do the certification and give it the stamp. So we can actually look at every molecule. But who leads? Business? Oh, definitely. Right. Definitely business. But I think the job of the regulators and the job of the guardian is really important. You need to see the two as separate things. The guardian's job is to have a safe and healthy society and protect the safety of people. Could you come to Australia and tell our government that there are new ways to do this, please? I'd love to go to Australia. I've always wanted to go. <laughs> I just raised that because I know that we're in, at the moment, we're going through an interesting phase in Australia because we used to export most of our recycling to China. Listen, yeah. And now they won't accept it since January. Right. So now we've got stockpiles of rubbish. Yes, we have the same. In warehouses. We've got paper that's a yeah. fire hazard. We've got yeah. glass, which we haven't recycled since the bottom went out of the market in 2003. 15, mm -hmm. stockpiled in warehouses, no one knows what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And right now, the one of the suggestions that has been mooted and hasn't yet been adopted is build more incinerators. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't seem very, like a very good solution to me. Yeah. So I yeah. suppose my question is, it's very difficult to transition systems, isn't it? It's complex, mm. it involves multiple stakeholders, it's expensive, scary, there's no obvious roadmap. But what should we be aiming for as a society? I think honouring the transitions is critical, certainly for business and government. And it's not going to be like we just turn around. But we have to remember that if you're trying to go north and you're going 100 miles an hour, but you're meant to be going south, it doesn't help you to slow down to 20 unless you turn around. If you're using that to slow down so you can turn around, then it's legitimate to slow down for a while, pointing the wrong direction, and then turn. So if it's about that story, then you've got something to tell the children that could give them some hope. So in the case, this case, the idea that it's just burn, baby, burn, you know, if that's all we've got, then we realize that carbon in the atmosphere above natural levels is now toxin. So what we're doing is pumping toxins into the air. So is that our plan? Is to double glaze well, the, the plan. Let's make back a better plan. plan. Yeah. So I think the thing with incineration is we do realize what has to happen and is happening de facto here is concentration and flow. We have to be able to concentrate the material and then move it in order for it to be valuable. That's why mm -hmm. oil is so valuable mm -hmm. because it's easy to move in a pipe. Mm -hmm. Massive amounts of energy you can move in a pipe. So, it's, mm -hmm. of course, it's going to be a very cost-effective thing. But when you look at this, this miscellaneous trash, and what do you do with it? If you look at a village where they've got garbage mm. like this, mm. plastics, what do they do? They mm. burn it. Burn it. They throw it in a hole or they burn it. Or they throw it in the river and let it go to the ocean. That's it. I want to ask you one more question because I know it's what everyone's thinking. These questions and these issues are so big 
the opportunities are obviously there. There's lots to read and lots to hope for. But what can citizens do individually? If I were on a panel right now, that would be the question everyone would raise their hand and say, what can I do? I'm not Walmart, I'm not Tetra Pak, and I'm not the government. What can I do? Well, the obvious things are speak with your wallet. Support the people who are doing things this way. In your work, bring this to the work. So that's why we made these tools. They're available. So pick up the new tools. If you're in fashion and you say, I don't have time to think about this and I, I'm not able to articulate all this science, therefore I'll ignore it, you're missing a great opportunity because it's there. The information's there. That's why we created Fashion for Good. So you can actually go in there and find dyes, find this, find that, and see examples and then tell people this exists and therefore it's possible. And so you'd like to make it possible for you too. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you